CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I'm sick of it every year. Okay, Mike Boast, he's gone. Madigan is gone. <sighs> Where's Mike Boast when you need him with that righteous fury against something like the Supreme Court, huh? Where's Let Mike Boast when you go. need him? <laughs> uh, hey, did you know that Moses action figure that night? Yes. Did you know that Illinois has an average monthly uh, revenue of over $100 million from recreational cannabis sales? As of 2022, Chicago hosts an impressive 44 cannabis dispensaries. Did you know that, Ben, 44? I did not know that. Well, we read this every day. You should. The Windy, C- <laughs> the Windy City is the perfect place for the Illinois Cannabis Convention, June 10th through 11th. Brought to you by NECAN, the convention will be the largest gathering of the existing local medical cannabis industry and those getting into the new adult-use recreational market. The convention will showcase more than 100 companies, brands, and product lines. There's also four, count them four, full programming tracks running each day from medical, business, cultivation, and social justice featuring dozens of expert speakers with practical knowledge and advice for attendees of all levels of experience. All are welcome. Go to NECAN.com slash Illinois, N-E-C-A-N-N.com slash Illinois for information and to register. Today's Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, May 3rd, is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com, and if you want to help out this program, you can. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A, V as in victory, S-K-Y. I'm sick of it! Every... Gear! We give power to one person! And the Ben Jarofsky Show starts now. It is Tuesday, May 3rd, and this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this... Row is down Tuesday, and here's why. I think you all know why, ladies and gentlemen. I think it was yesterday about, I forget what time, sometime in the evening. Word broke the Politico had the scoop. They got a draft somehow or other. We don't know. We'll talk about that with our distinguished guests coming up really soon. They've got a copy of Sam Alito's. Sam, like I know the guy. Justice Alito's uh, original what, first draft. Uh, just destroying, annihilating Roe. We all knew this day was coming. Terry Cosgrove has come on this show. He's already said Roe is down. We knew it was coming, ladies and gentlemen. And yet, just like this punch to the stomach is really hard to take. Uh, And uh, I just, just one person I thought about talking about this with, and that, of course, is dear friend of the show, uh, big champion of women's reproductive rights from the north side of chicago state representative kelly cassidy uh kelly uh, welcome back to the show i'm furious you're furious i think we got to get down to business real fast don't you agree i do i do Um, all right it's a hell of a day 
Uh, and then I also want to say that we have a second guest coming up. I had already booked this other guest, Anton Seals, to talk about Whole Foods uh, in Englewood and the whole issue of developing the south side of Chicago and the west side of Chicago. So we're going to have that. I'm going to have to do a completely different conversation in about a half an hour, but that's OK. Uh, I love Anton. He's such a great guy. He is a great guy. And he tells it like it is. And I was all fired up about Whole Foods uh, closing its operations in Eglewood. And then Roe, uh, the Alito decision and Roe came down and now I'm all fired up on that. Uh, all right. I just want to make uh, I want to say one thing to my distinguished guest, Kelly Cassidy. This is a podcast. It's true. And when Kelly comes on, sometimes we really let uh, our freak flags fly. Uh, but this particular episode, we've already decided we're going to uh, sub- once a week, we uh, have a show on Lumpen Radio and we that's a no swearing show. So I'm going to I'm going to just tell myself as much as I'm speaking uh, to Kelly. No swearing Tuesday. Uh, ben, have you met me? <laughs> and we're talking about freaking the end of Roe. But I got this. Okay, I got this. I'm yeah, going to pretend got, that kids are in the room. Else I got else it. Bleep you. Um, all right, Kelly. I don't even know where to start with this one. Uh, let's just start with what are the implications of Alito's decision, presuming, of course, uh, that he has the four votes and all the reporting says uh, that there's five justices locked in uh, to obliterating Roe. So what are the implications for women in this country? Well, you're right to point out that this is a draft. We don't know yet what the final version is going to look like. It could it could get worse. I'm not sure how, but, you know, and it might get incrementally better. But I think that what is very clear is that the the outcome is the end of Roe. And, you know, some of the things, there's a lot of telegraphing in this decision um, that that suggests they're not done here. Um, you know, we've, we've, we saw in the lead up to this over the course of the last couple of weeks, starting to discuss a national ban on, on abortion, um, putting the lie to everybody saying, we're just trying to put this, you know, th- th- this is an issue that the states should decide. So, you know, they, we know they're not done, um, but they also, uh, in, in Alito's draft opinion, make reference to several other decisions that are based on the same legal premise as Roe. Roe is, is, is based on this concept of a right to privacy, which is not specifically enumerated in the Constitution, but has long been interpreted as such. And so, you know, Roe was the beginning of, of a great deal of legal work based on that right to privacy, but so is interracial marriage in Loving, so is birth control in Griswold, so is my marriage in Obergefell. Like, it's, there's a lot at stake. Um, you know, here in Illinois, we, we built a, a pretty remarkable force field um, by passing the Reproductive Health Act, by, by legislative and legislatively enabling marriage equality, um, you know, access to birth control. All of these things are in our statutes, so we've got a buffer zone, um, but if they are successful in passing national bans, a, a national ban on abortion will invalidate our abortion laws. Yes. A national I, ban on marriage equality will invalidate my marriage. So, you know, it, it, it is the beginning of more horrific experiences for folks who are constantly on the receiving end 
of, of some of the ugliest of the ugly things that our, our politics produce. And a national ban would obviously have to be uh, passed by Congress. Right. Uh, Which, and, you know, right now we have a majority in, in the House and, you know, we have nominal control of the Senate. Um, but we are going into an election cycle where there's a lot of concern about Democrats facing pretty stiff headwinds <clears throat> and, you know, concerns about hanging on to all of the seats, much less picking up seats. So it, it is it's critical that we don't sleep on this just because we've secured these rights in Illinois um, doesn't mean that they are permanent. Doesn't mean that if we lose majorities here in Illinois or lose the governor's mansion in Illinois, we can lose those very easily. Um, you know, same with if we lose the national elections. Um, you know, if we don't send back everyone that we can send back, if we lose any House seats or Senate seats, if we're not putting energy into House and Senate seats around us, it's all coming crashing down. I, I made reference uh, in the press conference today. You know, my entire life is built on a series of Supreme Court decisions based on the right to privacy. Yeah. And in this moment, I feel like my my life and my family life with my my right to bodily autonomy, my access to all of the, the full suite of reproductive health care that led to creating my family and now managing post fertility life um, and and my marriage, my kids' relationship with their other mother. My life is a giant Jenga tower and I'm watching it fall because this decision pulls out that brick. And and it, it's, it's a very scary time for a lot of people. I had some pretty tough conversations with my kids last night about what this could mean. I'm hearing from people from all over the country, um, you know, colleagues thanking me for, you know, not taking no for an answer, colleagues apologizing for thinking I was out of my mind. Um, you know, there a lot of folks woke up this morning to a world they didn't expect to live in. What, what do you mean, colleagues, uh, uh, thanking you for not taking no for an answer? What are, you, what are you alluding to? When we were, well, I mean, we've now, we are, the abortion law in Illinois, um, the, the, the safeguards for abortion law are actually contained in three separate bills that were passed in successive years. Um, and when we were trying to pass House Bill 40, which removed our trigger law, there were, there was very little national discussion of overturning Roe v. Wade. It was just, it was very subtle. Um, fast forward a couple of years and the RHA, the Reproductive Health Act, uh, which I carried is up and we then start to see the bans get passed around the country on mm -hmm. um, the outright abortion bans in, in states, in red states around us. And, and again, I said this, this, they're coming for us. This is what's happening. This is the end of Roe. This is a when not if proposition. And, you know, there were a lot of folks who just didn't want to take another abortion vote, didn't want to have to face their constituents and talk about abortion. They're uncomfortable discussing abortion. Um, and, and we almost didn't get the bill called. It, it was very, it was very close. And there were points along the way where I was certain we weren't going to win. Um, and it wasn't until a group of first year, first term women who were, who kind of came in on that anti-Trump wave, who took their keys out of their voting switches. Like, <laughs> I'm not doing anything else until we pass the RHA and thank God for them. Mm. 
All right. Uh, so there's two fronts to follow up on. One is national. One is Illinois. Uh, as you pointed out, if a national ban is passed uh, in Congress, that would mean MAGA took complete control of the House of Representatives and the Senate. Yes. Uh, I don't know uh, if they would have enough to override a veto. Right. Uh, but it, it would be a very scary moment, obviously. Uh, and and then, of course, ever, all the chips be on the table in the 2024 exactly. election. As Republicans, I want to point out, they're already trying to seize control of, of voting uh, count processes in yep. all swing states. So, folks, you got to wake up. I mean, this is just not a one-front battle. Kelly oh, Cassidy, this we're is a full-on constitutional crisis. No yes, question. Exactly. They tried to steal the election of 2020, Kelly. They 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 had an insurgency at the House. <laughs> they, Trump's on the phone with Georgia's election board officials trying to get them to flip votes. This is a very serious uh, situation. But I'm going to try to focus on the abortion issue for the moment. And... Uh, so let's talk about the national ban. All right. Now this is with this uh, opinion leaked, this preliminary draft leaked. It's on the table. So what impact, think nationwide, put uh, political strategists hat on, nationwide the impact this has on the midterm congressional and Senate races? What do you think? Well, I, you know, I suspect that, uh, you know, both camps are hoping to use it to their advantage um, to motivate their base. Um, you know, I think what we have seen, um, you know, over the years is is that uh, women voters can get sleepy and then something like this happens and they come roaring back to life. Um, it's a great motivator um, for, for, uh, democratic women in particular. Um, and, and so maybe, you know, as you say, maybe people will wake up. Um, but you know, we, we, we can't pretend that the other side is not flogging this and saying, look what we did for you. Get us, get us the rest of the way home. And this is what we can pull off. Um, and so, you know, everything, everything can swing both ways, honestly, um, in, in, in a cycle like this. Um, and everybody is looking for whatever advantage they can get, um, going into, going into this election. Yeah. And I have to, I have to take a deeper dive into where we stand with gerrymandering and congressional districts. Uh, it's constantly changing. Again, there's all sorts of court rulings uh sometime in the case of new york the democrats drew up drew up a map that was favorable to democrats a judge ruled against it i believe in wisconsin it was reverse the the, the judge ruled uh, in favor of the republicans so you really have to when you gerrymander uh kelly you know how the game is played when you gerrymander you could take uh an issue like abortion which a majority of people support and then turn it around so that the people getting elected are anti-abortion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you're the 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 map making process is fascinating and terrifying in that way. Yeah, uh, and this is why I support on a nationwide level uh, a, a fair map. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Not on Illinois. Oh, I'm, uh, not, I'm not about unilateral disarmament. Let's be clear. Yes. Yes, I'm with you on that one. Well-intended goo-goo types from the North Lakefront. Uh, hey, right. I'm from the North Lake Front. Yes. By the way, I, just a moment of levity here. 
Kelly Cassie's a beast on Twitter. And I'm not a Twitter guy. Everybody knows this. Uh, Kelly, I, I, I have an account, but I never look at it. I only have it because an editor made me get one. Uh, I don't think anybody even knows it's my account. Anyway, I never look at Twitter. Last night at the bowling alley, long story short, Kelly sent me a text with a tweet she had. Uh, let's not go down the road on that particular tweet, but got me in a rabbit hole looking at Kelly Cassidy's Twitter page. Oh, my God, you're like you're fighting like on 10 different fronts. <laughs> like, God dang. Well, I was are- a little wound up last night. Yes. But one of the points you made, I think it was you, uh, I'm pretty sure it was you. Um, is that the other side? Like they're 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 thinking long term. This yeah. they don't. This is play. yeah. This didn't, no. This wasn't an idea that popped up a week ago, right? I, I've been working pretty much full time in the abortion space since the early '90s, and the this train was in motion then. You know, during the early '90s, when what we saw was you know, even some Republicans who can, who describe themselves as sort of pro-choice, but and would offer restrictions. Let's let's do reasonable restrictions. Let's do spousal waiting periods. Let's do parental notification. Let's do you know informed consent. Let's create uh, you know surgical center requirements that you know a cardiac suite doesn't need for for abortions. All of these things were strategically placed along the way to undermine the foundational support for reproductive health care, to, to create a scenario whereby we don't consider this health care, uh, you know, until the RHA abortion was handled in the criminal code in, in Illinois statutes. So all of those things were the early, uh, early strategic moves that have brought us to this place. The Republicans have been packing the court pipeline with, you know, there, no dumb idea. Right. No idea. Too crazy. If you can pass it, we'll 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 get it into court and try to to get to the Supreme Court with the perfect case, um, which, you know, has has come to fruition today. And so the folks who were saying, let's be reasonable, let's let's you know, it's only a little restriction. Those were the folks who were complicit in today's outcome. Yeah. All right. Uh, Well, let's talk about that in terms of Illinois. Uh, and uh, I'm with Terry Cosgrove uh, 100% on this point. I'm not with Terry Cosgrove and everything he says, but in this point, I'm with him. Uh, and that is people in Illinois don't realize, liberals, Dems, how precarious the situation is. Yeah. And I've had so many people to, oh, you don't have to worry. We, like, when we talk about overturning Roe, well, we don't have to worry about that in Illinois, Ben, because, you know, they passed a, a law. And I'm like, what, you think these guys are just going to be around forever? J.B. Pritzker is just going to be always the governor? There's going to be House Democratic majorities in the House and the Senate forever? Uh, Republicans right now are putting all their money behind Richard Irvin. Yeah. Who is the mayor of uh, Aurora and is a Kenny G's guy. And Kenny G kicked five million. Yeah. Not the good Kenny G for <laughs> easy listening music fans. <laughs> the not so good Kenny G, the nefarious man behind the Republican machine. Paying for it all. Ken Griffin, richest man in the state. So Kenny, Ken Griffin has said, I'm kicking in as much as it takes to elect Richard Irvin. The whole point of Richard Irvin is to, like, soothe people. Oh, he's a nice guy. Yeah. You know, he's more or less moderate. Uh, 
And uh, why don't you talk a little bit about Richard Irvin's running mate? I think you know a little bit about her. I do. Um, and this gets into the heart of like the Trojan horse aspect of Richard Irvin on the issue of abortion. So Kelly, why don't you uh, introduce, I've done it myself already, but why don't you go a little further, talk about Rich, uh, Richard Irvin's running mate. So his lieutenant governor candidate uh, is a woman by the name of Avery Bourne, um, who uh, I, I actually have a pretty good relationship with. Um, but this is the person who, um, when we when we passed the RHA, um, the, the Republican caucus actually did something really, really smart, which was um, convince all of the old white men in their caucus to not speak on the abortion bill um, and uh, give all of their time to Representative Bourne, uh, who at the time was you know, eight and a half months pregnant. Um, ironically enough, she was wearing a, a red dress and we had been surrounded by handmaids for the entire session. And uh, at one point, um, a bunch of those old white men were standing behind her. And it really did look like a scene from The Handmaid's Tale, to be honest with you. Um, but it was she and I did a three, three and a half hour debate on the Reproductive Health Act. Um, very much a clash of the titans moment. Um, and uh, she is um, as passionate in her belief that my uterus isn't mine to control uh, as as I am about my uterus being mine to control. Wow. And uh, so my sense of it is that if the Republicans win the um, if they defeat Pritzker, it's open season in terms of bills being introduced and aggressively pushed. Absolutely. uh, severely restrict abortion rights in the state, correct? Absolutely. If we if we lose the governor's mansion, if we were somehow to to lose the majority in either chamber, I mean, we've got super majorities in both chambers, um, but, you know, it, not by huge margins, first of all. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's unlikely that we lose the majority, but still possible. We don't know what we're walking into with this year. Um, but losing, losing the governor's mansion would mean that we won't make any more advances, that's for sure. Um, even if we do hang on to the majorities in the House and Senate, we, we certainly don't make any more progress. Um, but if we were to lose either chamber, it's open season. No, mm-hmm. hun- no question. Yeah, and uh, so wake up, people. And uh, it's not just open season yeah. on people with uteri. It's open season on all of us. It's open season on queer kids and trans fam- trans kids and their families, on gay families, on my family, on my adoption, on my on my marriage. It's all on the table. They mentioned the Loving versus Virginia decision in this draft. Talk about settled law. Yeah. It's it is it's very chilling. Uh, and that that decision uh, relates to uh, interracial marriages. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the next step would be ban those. Uh, all right. Let's talk briefly. Uh, get your thoughts on this one. The rhetoric of the right. I talk about this all the time. I love your views on this. Uh, there's a strong uh, fiber of libertarianism 
in so much of what the right proclaims, particularly in the fight over masks. Oh, my God. If I heard another <laughs> liberty, liberty, liberty. Uh, and yet each one of these instances, Kelly, that you talked about when you talk about eroding the right to privacy takes away like our liberties. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. I mean, libertarians yeah. are only libertarians to the extent, you know, it, until they get to my uterus. Like, I do a lot of great work with my libertarian colleagues on criminal justice reform. I mean, cannabis reform, you know, they love that. Um, based on that same principle that it's none of my business. But my uterus is their business. My marriage is their business. My relationship to my children is their business. My access to health care for my kids is their business. But they can have their cannabis. That works. Actually, I'm going to push back with you on you on that one. They're pretty worthless in the fight for cannabis. Oh, I'm not saying they've been great. I'm saying that the ones, the Republicans that joined with me did it from that libertarian perspective. Yeah, I get you, but they're worthless. I'm looking at them. It's still illegal nationwide. And I don't see, put it this way. I don't see the movement uh, (laughs) on behalf of legalizing reefer, as as I see, to uh, banning abortion. Yeah. And I mean, you know, my colleagues, some of the most anti-choice members, you know, screaming my body, my choice over masks, completely unironically. It's ridiculous. Or the ones, (laughs) this may be sound like a stretch, uh, the uh, outraged uh, Supreme Court justices declaring the right to privacy of their uh, beloved opinion. (laughs) Okay. Let's just pause for a moment to think about, we're going to investigate this. Our opinions are private until we make them public. Oh, well, there was no right to privacy, you know? Uh, Uh, And uh, and I I really think we haven't (laughs) spent enough time talking about how absolutely cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs it is that a draft opinion was leaked that that you know this this you know revered institution this paragon of you know civility and 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 professionalism Mm -hmm. it was the the source of a leak and we don't know who leaked it um and we don't know why or what it means, but but just, you know, at its most basic level that someone there from whichever side believed that this was the right thing to do to violate that level of sanctity, if you will. Okay, uh, my next guest, Anton Seals, has joined us. We're going to radically switch conversations, topics. But before <laughs> we do, I have to, uh, Kelly, I, don't, I can't let you leave without following up on that. Uh, we talked very briefly about this before you went, we went on the air, and I want to get your thoughts on this. Um, so I don't know, your uh, political strategist hat, your political junkie hat, whatever hat this this question uh, requires. you got a lot of hats. Uh, so who do you think uh, the leaker was? Okay, one more time, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the opinion, which is just a preliminary, it's a draft, uh, 
by written by Samuel Sco, uh, Scalia Alito. Boy, yeah. <laughs> there you go. What's the difference, actually? Uh, and uh, was leaked to Politico, and they uh, published it, and all hell is broken loose um, subsequently. So, all right, your thoughts. Was it from the right or the left? I, I genuinely don't know. My first thought was that it was from the right in an effort to um, prevent it from being walked back at all. Um, that, that there may have been some pressure from within to soft pedal some of this a little bit maybe. And if it becomes public, then there's, it's difficult to, to walk it back. Um, others have wondered if it came from the left trying to, you know, perhaps cause enough of an out, out, outcry to, to mellow it. Um, I, 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 I don't think we're going to know. I don't, I, you know, I, I don't know that we'll ever know. Um, but my first concern was that this was an, an attempt to prevent somebody from softening it. Uh, yeah. Walk away uh, or, or walk away. They, they have five uh, justices who have signed on to it. Mm-hmm. That's my understanding. And we all know who they are. Right. Uh, and John Roberts, supposedly mm-hmm. uh, the um, chief justice, who is what passes for a moderate Republican. And let's not kid ourselves, folks. This is a very partisan court. Yeah. It's not like, you know, they're all blind justices just looking at the facts. No, Brett Kavanaugh was a political operative for the Republican right. Okay. <laughs> and uh, my guests are waving to each other. And uh, <laughs> I was loving when my guests know each other. Uh, so this is the political, there's a lot of political strategy going on in, on the bench itself. So I, I thought it was an attempt by some uh, uh, right-wing operative, of which there are many, <laughs> Clarence, who, who maybe Clarence Thomas's wife, for all I know, right. um, you know, speaking of right-wing operatives, uh, to just lock that five in yep. so now you can't leave because you're on the record that's yep. it'd be good to hear from uh you all <laughs> since we're on this topic and i'm sure that you invited me to chime in not about <laughs> this but what the what is around reproductive rights from um you know i know it's religious based in some sense but it seems almost um um, counterproductive in a way um, for the, the arguments against, you know, large government that conservatives usually. That's what we were just oh, talking it's, about. It's like the irony of it all. It's like, well, wait a minute. You want you you want small government, except when it comes to women's bodies and guns. Yeah. Then the government, you know, should be. A, oh, no, the, the opposite. Right? The opposite they don't want, any, they, they don't want yeah, anything. My guns. Very dangerous. Right. The, and so I'm just interested because I know for what we now call white culture in America, like it's based out of that European colonial culture. Um, this is not something that is in indigenous cultures or African cultures in the same way that are, that comes out of a European. Uh, and I think it might be the church, but I'm just wondering if you all have done like that. That history yeah. in that. All right, hold on one second. Uh, uh, Kelly Cassidy's going to jump in, but I just want to introduce that voice. Uh, <laughs> that's the great Anton Seals and Junior, from, uh, Junior, grow uh, greater <laughs> Englewood. And we're going to talk Whole Foods at Englewood. Don't worry, ladies and gentlemen. I've been talking about that. We will. But the man is a Renaissance man, and it's a great uh, point he made. <laughs> so 
Let's do some cross guest conversation. Kelly, respond. Uh, Absolutely. So you, you, you noted that there's often a religious connotation here. But, you know, what's amazing is that, you know, even that is a relatively recent invention. Um, it mm. is a it is a flag of convenience, if you will. For many, many years, you know, abortion was not a problem in the Catholic Church. In, and, you know, in, in my faith, in Judaism, we're really clear that life begins at crowning. Um, mm. You know, so so. The, the religious argument is one that that's part of that strategy, right, to 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 push public opinion. But fundamentally, fundamentally is a great word to use here. It's about subjugation of women. It's about controlling women's bodies. It's about keeping uh, keeping keeping us under control, whether that is, you know, forced procreation or preventing the wrong people from procreating like me. I certainly am the wrong people. Um, right. Right. You know, uh, it, it is, it's, it's a fiction. It is a misogynist fiction. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought it was. I just was, uh, <laughs> and, and, I and I'll go one step further. My scope of like, you know, um, around this particular issue, because Roe v. Wade has been, you know, and it's an interesting timing for uh, politically for the Democrats that have, yeah. have a different, you know, um, lens that they have to deal with is a larger tent from progressive, yeah. you know, liberals, which are mostly white, educated, to uh, the large band of people of color and all of their different, uh, you know, so trying to manage that as opposed to Republicans, which is just a straight ahead, like, it's pretty uh, easy to keep them on the same party. And if you like are part of us, you like agree with these frameworks. So even if you're black or whatever, you like, you're okay with me. Being a racist ass. Oh, can't use the word. Ooh, Anton, you missed the uh, opening line. You usually it's. I thought I was on the Ben Jarowski show. I was like, <laughs> I know you use Chicago language. I know he's like from the West Side somewhere. You know what I mean? Like, so I. Oops, forgot the. Uh, I am from the South Shore area. <laughs> I, I'm from the West Side of Evanston. Okay, we only speak refined. Yeah, uh, but. Well, but this particular show is going on radio as well, so we'll, we'll, we, we we'll will take care out. of that. Don't worry about that. He gave me, he warned me at the I warned and Kelly, I told and you have to warn Kelly, like, Anton, okay? And I, I, know Ke- I know Kelly, so I know I know how we, we, we and I, we, we have some time we need to catch up. There's been a we lot. We do. I miss that you. That has been cooking since we hung out. All right, so I, I'll just point this one out. Uh to, uh, to follow up what Kelly said, uh, Letitia Wallace was on the show many times, uh, and we talk about the the bill. And Kelly probably remembers this uh, in the House of Representatives in Illinois a couple years ago uh, to um, uh, promote more school lunches for poor kids. I think it would make a requirement uh, in every district. Poor kids have school lunches, and Republicans, man, it was unreal, surreal. The debate. I, Anton, Republicans standing up, you're giving away food. There's no account. But suddenly every nickel and dime has to be accounted for, you know, and it's like people are going to be weaker. It's like the human being. If you if you give some kid a lunch, he's not working for his lunch. And it's like all this weird. Oh, we did one this year. You know how they they, they are um, restricting access to to school lunches when you have fees and fines and stuff. We did one around that this year. And, and they, they did it again. Yeah. Like, what's what's to get make a family pay these fines if you're if you're going to let a kid graduate if they have outstanding fines? I'm like, 
So, so I think that's part of the issue we, that we're dealing with is the punitive culture. Yeah. Of how we, and it's interesting because we're dealing with this in Chicago around our violence of public violence. So people have asked me about this and I'm sure I'm here to talk about whole foods, but around public violence, they're all interconnected yes. for the last at least 20 years. Um, and it's modern phenomenon, you know, when you destabilize, there've been a lot of, I think that when you, when policymakers, uh, you know, Sands, of course, you know, Kelly here, you know, she's, she's, she's got a, a really thick skin. She gets, but policymakers, particularly in our city have created, you know, when you have losers, when the Democrats became more of the middle of the road, kind of like, we need to get tough on crime. Um, and that's being pushed. There's a narrative that's being pushed by the, the the public, right, to the politicians that they're trying to serve to catch up to. But sometimes it's false. It's like when we talk about uh, the crime that's feeding our city. You say, "Oh, it's gang culture." Well, right. people in the communities know there aren't these kids aren't going to gang meetings. There's not service. There's right. not a, like an order of like it, it. like fits into a narrative that's so disconnected from like. This is interpersonal violence where people are going from zero to 100. Yeah. And it's not just black people. This is American culture of how we handle situations. Right. And there's no filter anymore. No, there isn't. All right. Well, I'm going to shift the gears officially okay. to the whole food conversation. Before I just want to finish that one point I was making, they won't give, they make the woman have the kid, but God forbid She's too poor to feed the kid. You got to starve. So they love the the fetus and hate the born human. Or we're going to come in and take that child and punish you for being poor and yeah. put that child in a health system. Basically. Where, where they're not going to get care either. Yeah. And Mag, I just got to say, you're pretty <laughs> twisted. And I'm going to add one more dimension to this. The man who put two of these anti-abortion justices, three of them on the bench. This dude, I don't know how many abortions he may have caused. And I'm talking about <laughs> Donald John yeah. Trump, who openly brags about how he was just running around uh, playing the field in the 60s and 70s when everybody else in his generation was going to Vietnam. I'm just saying that, Kelly Cassidy. So I think back... Well, you know, how many women did you impregnate? Yeah. How many had to have abortions? Yeah. I mean, the, the hypocrisy is real. And, yeah. I, and I, I'll let you get to the whole foods conversation. But back when I was a clinic escort in my teens, I, I once escorted the daughter. There were two clinics in town. And so I was escorting at the clinic on the wrong side of town. And the, I, saw, I recognized the car from the person that leads the protest at the other clinic stopped two blocks away and put her child out. Wow. Wow. She walked through the gauntlet alone. Bunch of us ran and got her, got her under umbrellas and got her inside. The hypocrisy is real. Yeah, it is real. It's out there. All right, Kelly, thank you very much. Uh, I know you got a busy day. We're going to be talking Whole Foods. Well, you're always welcome to stick around if you want, but we are doing a radical change of conversation. Uh, <laughs> and I'm really trying to be disciplined because I want to have a Whole Foods discussion, a food desert discussion, an investment in Chicago discussion. Uh, this is uh, one of my uh, favorite topics. So I Well, I'm going to leave you all to it. All yeah, right, nobody, there's nobody better than Anton to talk about that. So look forward good to, to seeing you, Kelly. Soon. Take care, y'all.
All right. Kelly Cassidy, the great KC. All right, Anton Seals, uh, Grow Greater Englewood. Uh, all right, let me just introduce this general topic. Uh, I think it was approximately six years ago, too much fanfare. Mayor Rahm Emanuel got together with the leaders of Whole Food uh, and uh, cut the ribbon on the opening of a new Whole Foods at 63rd and Halston on the south side uh, in what had been a quote-unquote food desert, meaning there's no grocery store options or very few uh, serving a large population. Uh, the, the city uh, spent uh, approximately $10.7 million in TIF dollars tax and commenced financing, the only secret, uh, serious source of money the city has for economic development, most of which gets spent in rich white neighborhoods, even though it's really intended for poorer neighborhoods, just pointing that out. Uh, but this was a moment where the city said, look, all you TIF critics, we got it right. And now there's a Whole Foods in Englewood. Thanks to our benevolent leader. Well, our benevolent leader has left the city of Chicago. And guess who else has left or about to leave? Whole Foods. They announced last week they're leaving uh, 63rd and Halstead. And now it's a new mayor's problem uh, to how to figure out who's going to fill that store. Uh, Anton, just your general thoughts about Whole Foods uh, leaving Englewood. Go ahead. Uh, you know, so Whole Foods or Amazon, actually, uh, because I think that's the big change here is Amazon. Um, the feeling, I think, um, is, you know, with everything that's moving in Inglewood, that all of the different groups have been working towards over the last uh, decade, at least, you know, the kind of collective impact where people are at least in the same book, you know, where there may be, you know, just small disagreements what you have in this one larger connect neighborhood, the greater Inglewood, and by that I mean Inglewood and West Inglewood, is the um, the really the fight for the soul of the city in a way around Black Chicago um, as a hub. <laughs> and um, so I would say that the feeling is, well, good riddance to a store that doesn't see you know, all the value that is happening in the community. Like, if you don't want to be here, then, you know, Goodbye kind of thing. Um, on the other end, you know, we do understand that like what's happening in the, you know, some of us understand that what's happening in the grocery grocery industry is also shifting this because you have a lot more ways in which people shop. The, those, those behaviors have drastically changed in the last two years. And so these large retailers are having to pay more. Um, you know, the store always had, uh, a mismatch in a way. So there was Grow Brady Ingold actually started as a coalition. So myself and Sonia Harper and several others, you know, came together in particular around making sure there were black growers and farmers that were going to be reflected. That was, that came out of this green, healthy neighborhoods plan. And it was also in these other quality of life plans prior to make sure that we didn't just have people coming in from the outside the community saying, Oh, we're going to do farming and we're going to, you know, a lot of well-intended white organizations and we're going to do farming. And, you know, as a, you know, a South side kid steeped in the history of, you know, American culture, black culture, you know, that is the most, you know, <laughs> redundant thing I've ever heard. Like black people being taught how to farm by white people. And that just made no sense from all of the people who basically make up the South and West side of Chicago from the agrarian South that gave this country its wealth, like duh. <laughs> and so, you know, knowing your place around that, you know what I mean? Around like 
we didn't just pop up here and we're not coming from a deficit point of view and we know our history and you know that you owe us. So those conversations are no brainer for people like me. Like we have our own process. The whole foods was negotiated between an alderman that then subsequently passed and that prior administration, which was the Emanuel administration. The big silver lining here is that when we were organizing, the other part that then came out of that was that we started organizing around a community benefits agreement. So while we started around these black farmers, it started to shift into like, well, we need to put together a community benefits agreement. But what happened there is the most interesting part of the story that gets lost. The CEO or the co-CEO, Walter Robb, met with many of the folks, Asia and uh, Sonia and Perry, who was it? And the, the demands that collectively that the community had come up with, they thought that they could do and meet and go beyond. I've I've done a, a couple of these CBAs. It's usually very acrimonious. The company usually is like, "Who are you to tell us what we want to do?" Right. Uh, to his credit, and so this gets into the individual. Walter Robb wanted to do something very unique. He had opened a store in Detroit. He had talked with some of our uh, folks who are part of our larger community in Detroit, Baba Malik and the Detroit Food Security Network, to try to create a store that was uniquely modeled in that way for that particular community. And But it's still in a capital framework of the Whole Foods footprint, right? So they tried to do something very similar here with their 365 kind of store and model it just for this neighborhood. Um, so we didn't just want just jobs. We wanted an opportunity for black businesses to be able to get their product in the Whole Foods network, right? But I think that where the 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 um, where the big change happened is that as they re- as Whole Foods probably got closer to once Walter Rob left, the commitment to community engagement shifted, and then the store was sold, and then that kind of disappeared altogether. So Whole Foods as a whole was sold, uh, was purchased by Amazon. Amazon. That's correct. And so Amazon never had the engagement that Whole Foods had. Right. And so Whole Foods is not just a brand that is in Amazon's portfolio. So I'm sure that, you know, and I think what's happened right now, of course, there's a lot of, you know, since the pandemic, there's a, you know, a lot of more folks who are now much more interested in food. I I could talk to you at, at nauseum about food deserts which is a misnomer, right? Because of our work, uh, when I worked for Congressman Russ, who don't, who does not get the credit that he deserves because it was Congressman Bobby L. Russ who were meeting with groups from Black Oaks <laughs> to Real Man Cook to uh, Sister LaDonna Redman, who was the, the, the progenitor in a lot of ways, the Erica Allens, the Dara Coopers, who were at meeting on 79th Street Right around this movement to codify the issue around food access in the communities. This is, goes back to the 2007 Farm Bill, right? So these have some roots that I think is important for your audience to understand in terms of like what ended up emerging. A lot of that was based on a report that was done by LaSalle Bank at the time. Um, I can't even think of the, I think her name was Mar- Mari or Marnie, something like that who wrote that, um, and then there was uh, some critical kind of uh, 
pushback against, you know, the connotation of food deserts uh, when it was access to, to food was one part of it. So this is a great case scenario of, you know, if people needed to eat healthy foods because what they were finding is that chronic health diseases in our communities are exacerbated by diet related issues, you know, um, diseases. And that the, the answer would be if we put more fresh grocery stores in the community. What the miscalculation is that that doesn't always transfer to the, the breaking someone's behavior to salt and sugar <laughs> or convenience and cheap and accessibility, the cheapness of salt and sugar. Yeah. And so all those things kind of like, um, and then there's also the brand loyalty that black people have uh, as a consumer. Right. So, you know, even how we think about certain goods, they have a brand name that you call them by. Now, all cultures do this. It's not something unique to black people, but we are loyal. We are one of the you know top like when they do these strategies around research marketing and, you know, the, they research this this information to know. And so I think that the Whole Foods had some sense of um, when it opened it was great when they had much more community. They kept the hot bar full. You know, they had Taco Tuesdays. They had different events and even, that had much more. And they didn't build on that. They retracted from that, thinking that the, the store itself would be. The produce section was always very thin, to say the best. To, you know, So if you're not able to find a few of your mainstay products that you like, then you're not going to go in that store but for specialty things. Mm -hmm. And then when those specialty things start to disappear, you go less. Now, I know because I used to work out of there many a day over the last several years and sit in the little cafe area um, and have meetings. And this is before Zoom became the standard. But (laughs) uh, so I think that there is um, a lot of moving parts right now. So uh, it's kind of hard to give an assessment. I know that people, everybody wants to do something. So that's a good thing from community actors to the political class to. um, uh, And also, I think Amazon itself wants to figure out a way to exit smartly and because it would be in their best interest to do as such. Right. Right. so I think all of those things are in play right now with, um, you know, what happens now to the whole food. So what we do know so far or what's been rumored, I should say, uh, is that whole foods uh, or Amazon is committed to not leaving until the end of the year. Um, that there will be, you know, the store won't, there'll be probably some elements of the store still intact. So it'll make it a lot easier for the transfer to whoever the new operator is to come. Mm-hmm. You don't start from scratch. There's just such momentum that we have, in this community, you know, what it takes to rebuild a community, um, being, um, and then rebuild a community that black people want to then desire to live in still like just to stay given the deluge of violence. Um, and it's just random violence at that. So people don't even know. Uh, so you like, when you start talking about shopping, shopping is of leisure shopping is, you know, something that you don't want to have. And so even if we, start to think about it because it's relatively a safe space. But I think for even people outside of the Inglewood community, they, they, the commentary I've seen has been disgusting around, you know, even people who live maybe across the road in Grand Crossing or back in like, y'all, they couldn't afford, you know, they don't know who's in Inglewood. 
So it gets into the kind of myopic thinking of uh, of your other residents and how they think about or what they th- assume they know about people who live in Inglewood. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to go back to something you said. It's it's almost it's a tangent, but I I wrote it down. Uh, I'd love to for you to explore it a little bit. It, it, it is diverging a little bit from my uh, general theme and topic of how money is invested citywide. Right. Let's not forget that. It's one of my fa- pet favorite themes, as you know. So, but you said something, and I quoted it. I wrote it down. Brand loyalty of black people that black people have is very intense. Uh, and I'm like, I had immediately, I started thinking when you said that, what kind of brand loyalty do I have? Uh, you know what I mean? I, I, and I'm such a lousy consumer. I don't really have brand loyalty except for the, to the Chicago Bulls, which is misguided, but whatever. Uh, so <laughs> my beloved Bulls. But what, uh, <laughs> What what brand loyalty are you alluding to uh, in terms of? Well, when they do market research, you know, they they do it, you know, by, you know, and some of the stuff you have to pay a lot of money to get your hands on in terms of like, you know, if you're buying detergent, what brand detergent? It's not the Whole Foods. They sold detergent. They just didn't sell Tide. (laughs) So I want Tide. They're not selling Tide or if I'm eating you know, Cheerios, they don't have Cheerios. They have, I don't know, some wheat loops, <laughs> right? Same stuff, but it's like, if you don't find these few items there, yeah, I'm not going to go there except to get something of particular that I maybe can't find somewhere else. I think they always struggle with that. And at the initial, when they first opened, it seemed to be a lot more communication around trying to fit the store to the consumer demands and then that shifted once they kind of, you know, backed off of once you can start to see that something was going on with the larger Whole Foods um, apparatus as a business. And part of that, you know, gets at, you know, how the country shifted as well. You know, from, you know, when we elected the the unspeakable. <laughs> um. Tie that into this discussion. The unspeakable, of course, is the unspeakable president before this uh, current president. I assume that's the unspeakable to who that is the unspeakable. I say his name. No, okay, that's fine. You have to say his name. Yeah, the Agent Orange is. He's got a lot of different names. You know what I mean? But I think that there was an um, as business started. If we go back to 2016, where the country was at that particular point you know, on the ends of Barack Obama's uh, second term and, you know, what the, you know, this kind of scaling back of um, in terms of how the Republicans saw government operating um, allowed for, you know, these kinds of larger groups to get even larger. So you saw tremendous growth of Amazon, Mm -hmm. you know, the tax cuts, all those things have ripple effects so that in that M&A space, there were assets that the folks could then acquire that made a lot more sense, right? And then you had this, um, you know, you started to see some of the kind of movement around prices of food going up, not nowhere near where they are now. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of stuff. So I think the desire of the community would love to have like a Black-owned grocer there, um, but there are very few of them as operators, I think there's been talk around a cooperative model um, wanting to be there, but that, you know, I think that people fancy that and I think it's possible, but it takes a long time to pull together a, a, a worthy cooperative that 
um, could operate and sustain itself. Um, it's no small feat. Um, but again, this is like, we live in a society where people want like bite-sized information and to, you know, instant, you know, instant impact like tomorrow <laughs> and don't have to get into a lot of trouble. You know what I mean? Because it, it, it doesn't get to some of the digging. So what I am hopeful about with the store is that you have a developer that wants to be able to have something there. So there's a continuity of service. You've got a, a large community that is demanding that something, you know, that the, the uh, services aren't, uh, you know, that the, there is no interruption in people being able to get their groceries because then without this store, there are very fewer options in the community, right? They would have to go to, to Woodlawn. But it also gives the city an opportunity to think about, you know, given that we now have the Go Green on Racine store, you know, the city, or at least on the south side, used to say, the infrastructure for the neighborhood kind of corner stores needs to be revisited. Um, those stores have been occupied by people outside of the black community and used as extraction tools. So I think like some of this conversation, Ben, is, you know, also looking at the black community where you can come and extract, right? Uh, and that's how we think of these quote unquote hoods and certain things are permissible and acceptable. Um, you know, the, the amount of, you know, vacancy we have in this community the amount of, and people can say a lot about this administration, um, over the last, but what they can't say is that this administration has not opened the doors to think about making the kind of investments that are needed that are owed to the residents that don't even live here anymore. Because the infrastructure, what's this, what the city still has to struggle with as a city is a quote-unquote world-class city. You can't have a world-class city when <laughs> 10 miles away from each other, people live 10 years less. Mm. You just can't. It makes no sense. So well, as, I, a, as, a, as a total city, as a, Chicago, as a Chicagoan, that's shameful. Okay, so let me just uh, say this to what you just said. Mm -hmm. you, you said... I, uh, it gives the city an opportunity uh, to rethink strategies. Uh, and I noted that down. And then I've thought about that briefly while you were talking. I'm thinking, well, that suggests, Anton, that the city is actually thinking about these things. And I'm going to put this out there. Feel free to disagree with me, as I tell all my guests. I see no evidence since Harold Washington died that the city of Chicago, when it comes to economic development, thinks about anything other than moving poor people out and gentrifying the city. That that's that is its number one objective. I Go I ahead. I can't say that that's been the case in the last couple of years. I just cannot say that that has been the case. I think that many of these communities aren't in jeopardy of rapid gentrification because you because the pandemic shifted even the, the plans for the West Loop or South Loop. Sure, they're still building, but the, the city is not seen as safe. And now the city of Chicago is competing with other smaller cities. Austin, Louisville, Raleigh, you know, where you can still get the kind of goods and services without the kind of like, I might get carjacked tonight. Okay. Right? Let me let me let me just finish my thought on this one, and then you can and then okay. you can respond. 
I'm not saying the city has a plan. I, I don't go this way. I know there are people who think this way, but I don't go here. I've had conversations with many people who think this way. Like there's a secret plan right now to transform Englewood and take it from what it is now and make it a white neighborhood. I don't say that, uh, Anton. I don't subscribe to that. What I talk about, what I think about when I think of economic development in the city is that as an overall strategy, where it invests its money, look where it invests most of its money, it's an attempt to gentrify. And then when you get to communities that are outside that ring of development, it's benign neglect. It's just let, let it, if it falls apart, it falls apart. We got other problems to worry about. So I look at like Lincoln Yards, the biggest single economic development project of the last 10 years, $1.3 billion on the North side of Chicago. That's what I'm talking about. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is the residual of two administrations, one that was a lifetime since Harold Washington. And then a follow by another who has a, had a straight neoliberal playbook. When you get to mayor Lightfoot's administration, there is somewhat of a switch still a very much uh, centrist Democrat that has some progressive edges. The big difference I would say in the last couple of years is there's been a concerted effort to think about strategies in these neighborhoods with black developers, right? Because there is no infrastructure for them, right? Over the last 30 or 40 years, most of the money has been spent in the loop. I can you know, definitely tell you in my lifetime, I went to a school on the near West side, St. Ignatius college prep before they kicked me out. Right. <laughs> I'm an ex Wolfpacker. Right. What I can tell you is that Roosevelt row and the South loop and West loop did not exist 30 years ago. Yeah. Right. Those things that exist now were put into motion 20 years ago. So in order for us to have a strategy around the South side and the South side is the vast part of the neighborhood of the city of Chicago. It's the biggest part. It's where the most people live. And so because in our collective imagination over the last, since Barack Obama's, it's like, this is the murder capital of the entire world. That's the most, like you can go to the Bronx being from Chicago and they will be like, Oh, Right. That is now our have become part of our brand. Now, I would argue it's always been part of the brand. And I always argue that also, you know, part of what whiteness is, is having collective amnesia. It's like it has to be able to fit in because like, well, the outfit was all white folks killing each other, you know, and but it's cute and kind of like. You know, Trey Sheik, because you can go to the museum and hear about Al Capone and you can take a tour well, you don't do that for the GDs or the folks. It's like they're terrifying figures, you know? So there's no uh, escalation of that story that moves beyond um, where, you know, now we think of the Italians or the Irish who weren't white yet <laughs> during those times, right? That now are firmly part of white culture, right? And part of the white culture, we always talk about racism from black folks having to explain it's white culture that has to explain. Like it's the it's the absence of some truths. Like it's like like people don't want to talk about race, right? It's like why do we have to talk? It could just be about humans, and it's not about. It's like yeah, that's convenient when you're not on the other end of like having to deal with a neighborhood yeah. that 
you bulldozed and didn't have a plan to like even attract anything to be there. So Chicago's been shrinking in black population because it doesn't have opportunities. And the opportunities that have been come are for a particular crowd of people. Skilled labor, right? And they're into the labor force that you know is most that you don't need a college degree from is still riddled with racism. To still to this day, crane operators will probably have a noose hanging up there right now. And this kid can come from Niles and be in smuck and can make $150,000 and wax poetically on any social media platform about how hard he works. And that stands as the standard bearer. And I, I haven't listened, actually, I don't respond to it, but I've listened to this lunacy when it's like this is so disconnected because. All these people in Chicago, that we're paying for this. We're not exempt from the taxes. So, you know, I'm from a school like, you know, the Tea Party of Trump. Like, if anybody, we have the black coffee in this country. You know, and Meaning, so you can understand what I'm saying, is that if anybody is getting taxation without representation, it would be the Africans in this country. And there, that still is the residuals of us dealing with, like, a Whole Foods. That it took that space set, set, set blank for 30 years. We had to underwrite it with $11 million to incentivize them. So they didn't even find value in, still to this day, you can't even get a Trader Joe's to come. They don't find value in these communities because they're all extractive models. This is not who their demographic is. They'll tell you. They just don't want to say, I don't really serve those kind of people. Because it doesn't work for their brand. And they know that other the, the other people they don't quote, quote unquote serve will come to them. So I know this because when we went through this situation in South Shore, it took us years to, to land a, a, a grocer. Different dynamic because we had a really terrible landlord. So there was some dynamics there that, you know, just didn't, you know, <laughs> you know, made it a lot more difficult. Um, and so what I would say is that that took us a while to find the right mix because in a community like South Shore, what's different than Inglewood, which is that you have an economic diversity amongst black people at a much broader scale. So you have the largest amount of people who have, you know, moved from public housing. You've got um, half a million to a million dollar homes in the Jackson Park Highlands. You've got a solid amount of working class folks, homeowners, and then you've got a whole contingent of lakefront condo and cooperative owners. Yeah. Right. So all of those things, and some people are like, we want a Whole Foods. Over, oh, like we're not coming there. Well, we want a Mariano's. No, we're we're gonna sell to Albertson, right? And so what we learned is quote unquote, the rich people don't shop where poor people shop. Poor people shop where rich people shop. And I was like, ah, just kind of like, like, oh, but that is true. <laughs> and, you're talking, and that transcends race, what you're saying. That transcends, that trans, that is the, that is the, 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 like, once it's like, it's considered whole foods because it has, you know, there's a certain quality in terms of how, like what differentiates a whole foods from a Jewel Osco. Right. They have certain brands that are, you know, finer than others. Right. As they use that language, you know, carefully curated. 
you know, that kind of language, you know, flow straight from the shores of Italy. <laughs> Yeah, you know, or it's something that you cannot. It's exclusive, is my point. And yeah. so I think that all of that is. Uh, so I'm, I, I am uh, hopeful because we've got you know some good leaders. We've got Alderman Coleman who's going to step up. We've got Representative Sonia Harper. We've got a lot of community actors that are um, at the table who've been around. We've got new actors who are engaged. So I am hopeful that the symphony of, of voices. Uh, you know, we'll produce something that will only make Inglewood even stronger. All right. I got to throw a curveball at you. It just pops sure. in my mind when you started talking about uh, the uh, elected officials uh, in the general Englewood area. You mentioned a couple. Uh, w- one that you didn't mention was a guest on the show about two weeks ago. Lost track of time, Anton. And mm-hmm. that would be uh, Alderman Raymond Lopez of the 15th Ward, uh, otherwise known as Raylo. And, uh, we were talking casino, and he said if he gets elected mayor, he would move the casino to Englewood. Uh, it's what he said into the Englewood area, and the, you should see the look on uh, Anton's face <laughs> right now. I wish we were doing streaming this live. So, uh, your thoughts about a casino in Englewood? Take it away. I I cannot. Uh, that would not. That's a casino in Englewood. First of all, why? Right? Um, is that what the community would really need? A, a, a business that is built on you risking your money. It doesn't quite add up for me. No, I'm sorry. I, I don't think that I think that it's trying to be avant-garde in one way. Mm-hmm. Right? You know that, you know, this would spur economic development, but a standalone casino never does that. Mm. Never does. It's a destination spot. People will come in and then they would leave Yeah. because what other infrastructure would you, what, what dining options would you offer people outside of the, the casino? So it would be an extraction model. I think that I would urge uh, the alderman to relook at that. Um, I doubt that he probably would coming from folks, but like myself, um, I think that, um, you know, I, but I think that, you know, if he's thinking about economic development, you know, there are opportunities. I don't think that a casino would probably be one of them. But again, I think that if you ask the larger community, it would, I would, you know, my opinion would be just one. I, I have not heard people clamoring from the years I've been in the larger Inglewood community, like, oh, you know what we need here is a casino. <laughs> Well, I would go one step further. You're now you're making my point citywide, uh, and and this is a topic for another time. We're running out of time anyway. But uh, Anton, I I think uh, casino uh, in general uh, is a form of insanity to depend on to pay our uh, pension obligations, which is what we have here. Which is why supposedly we're bringing this casino to Chicago. So we we have these obligations that every year are right there. There's no. It's like paying your rent. You got to pay them. Listen, and- I'm gonna tell you, Ben. I think that the previous administrations got away with so much malarkey that they kicked this can down all the. And it's, I feel unfortunate for whoever becomes who stays the mayor. Because the framework in which they were given in terms of the finances of this city, 
with a shrinking population. Now, we did grow some in this last census. Um, so I think to your point, you know, what else do we have left? I mean, we've legalized weed. <laughs> you need casinos. Like, what else can you prop up that does not bear? Because what what we're really saying is that what, and 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 what I think the the Republicans or conservatives say is like, then we're not spending the money wisely, right? And what I would gather there is, you know, their their framework is usually like the well, people there. We don't need more social programs. You know, you need to get more ingenuity. I mean, that's the kind of insanity they really believe. If you just give people more, you know, or give less from the the public coffers, except for abortion, anti-abortion stuff, of course, uh, for them. (laughs) (laughs) But but I think that that is, you know, what's at odds is like, then what's next for, you know, capitalism to devour? You know, where can you, you know, you know, are you going to tax businesses like, what does it then take to, because the, the real, the re, the reality of our state and the city is when you have more, when you don't solve for poverty, when you don't want to pay people enough, like you're creating more pop, you're creating more of a problem. So we don't even have a baseline in which we, like if we're talking about poverty, Ben, people still reference poverty. What we still reference as poverty was a calculation from 1966 where family is making 15,000. So the AMI is based on something from almost 50 years ago. Yeah. $45,000, $50,000 in the city of Chicago today is eesh, you hung, you hanging on by a shoestring. You're, if you have a family and that's all you're bringing in, you're in trouble. Yeah. Because uh, you're not bringing $50,000 home. Yeah. No, I know that's that. That's so gross. <laughs> that's not your net. I, I, I'm well aware of that as a reader writer, I could tell you. I get the broke ass reader writer. That is, I understand how far fifty thousand will get you. Th- that said, uh, you know, I I was a big supporter of the fight for fifteen. Now I'm for the fight for fifty as a right. thousand and yeah. as a minimum. And, as a uh, minimum, like as now, a minimum, got gas six dollars a gallon. You've got, and so I was just in a conversation yesterday, and this is what I'll leave you guys with too. What I think are not just in Inglewood, but across many neighborhoods across our country, is what's happened is capitalism is failing in ways that allows for the social contracts to be ripped to shreds, right? So there's no longer a feeling for younger people of stability. And that's a dangerous thing to enter into because that means that we don't really believe that this thing could really work. So kids don't believe like going to college and doing everything, not in, not in mass. It's no longer a thing because you have a generation Gen X who all went away to college. Like I'm going to get more, more education. I'm going to get a better job who are loaded with thousands of dollars of debt. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, if you want to, Listen, capitalism is on the ropes. It, it'll probably ropes. survive, but it's an insane system. And if you want any more proof, uh, moving away from Whole Foods, I'll just say this. U.S. banks lending $13.5 billion with a B to Elon Musk to use his overvalued Tesla stock as leverage to pay too much that should be paid for a company that really – 
doesn't have the value that he's paying it for Twitter. That's freaking insanity. And yet somehow or other, there's not enough money. I have all this in quotes in Englewood to support a grocery store. We have lost our mind, Anton. See, we have, we have, uh, yeah, yeah, we have lost our minds. Uh, but we've retrieved our minds long enough. Uh, and uh, I forgot how much fun it is talking to you, Anton. I'll have to bring you Same back here, more man. often. Uh, I think you need uh, either some brews or some blunts to go with your podcast. <laughs> Uh, to make I'm it more of a like, red wine and reefer guy myself. Okay, but, uh, red wine and reefer. I'll be with that red wine and reefer with Ben Jarowski. All right. I like that. my cup of tea. Uh, anyway, Anton, thank you very much for taking Thanks time for uh, me, to man. talk. I appreciate it. All right. All right. Take care. All right. That's the great Anton Seals. I also want to thank Kelly Cassidy, uh, the great KC, Kelly Cassidy, state representative from the north side of Chicago, uh, for coming on the show. And, of course, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of Alton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Anton Seals, Kelly Cassidy, and Mayor Lori Lightfoot will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D, and the D stands for Demarvelous. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. That is correct.